First, let me just say thank you for giving us a Wednesday night, and I will give you my commitment that I will do my very best to teach uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit what God wants us to know in this series. So, a couple of announcements as we begin. Hopefully, everybody has signed in, uh, given me your email address. That'll give me a tool to communicate with you through. Um, I will let you know for the next 12 weeks, um, by the way, the schedule, if you turn to the very back page of tonight's handout, I have listed the schedule of each night's scriptures. So if you would like to know what this 12 weeks looks like, there it is. There will be one Wednesday night in there that will be off. It'll be Thanksgiving Eve. We decided we weren't going to do it, and we'll just skip that one and pick up that next Wednesday night. But what I wanted to let you know is every week's session will be recorded and distributed as need be. There will be podcasts of every session. If you're a podcast person, there you go. There will be YouTube posted on our website of every session. So if you come to a session and you want a friend you work with to see that session, send them to YouTube, send them to the website, tell them about the podcast. We'll make all that available. The DVDs and the CDs for this session will be made on request. And that doesn't mean you have to request every one, but you can, if you want those to be regular, you just need to let Katie know and she'll find a way to get those to you. Okay? So we want to make that available to anyone. And if by chance you have to miss a session, they'll all be posted online. The handouts, all of these materials, um, when I finish them every week, I send them to Katie. She posts them on the website. So all the materials, all the sheets will also be on the website as a guide for you. Uh, every tool we can come up with, we're going to use to communicate this. They're still coming in back there. What a wonderful problem. So... I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Michael's going to close those back doors when everybody gets in. And then we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Where would we be without your word? We'd just be wandering around in darkness. No clue who we are, no clue where we came from, no clue where we're going. But you gave us your word. You told us what was, you told us what is, and you told us what is to come. And you called us by name. You opened our eyes to see who you were, who you are, and who you will be. So tonight, Lord, we open up this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, the second letter. We've studied the first letter, Lord, and now we're curious what's coming next. So tonight, I pray that in Jesus' name, you will open our eyes, ears, and hearts to understand the Scriptures. I know you can do that. You specialize in doing that. So no one's going to understand this unless you give us the ability to by the power of the Holy Spirit. So my prayer for these 12 sessions is that you will do just that. Give us the ability to see, to hear, to know. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Tonight we're going to begin a journey. That's what I like to call this, a journey through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a strategic, well-traveled port city. And what we tonight, if you were to go on the map tonight to try to find it, you would go down to the bottom to southern Greece and you would find Corinth. Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles. Now understand something. You're not going to understand this letter until you get the context. Paul was specifically called of God to teach Gentiles. Now, I grew up in a church not even knowing what a Gentile was. I didn't. I heard preachers say the word, and I was afraid to ever ask because I was afraid to be embarrassingly stupid to ask the question, what's a Gentile? Very simply, it's a non-Jew. Now, what makes that significant is pretty much all of the followers of Christ up to the time of Paul were Jewish. But God comes to Paul, who is Jewish, and says, you're going to have a different assignment. You're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, up to that point, for a Jew to even go into a Gentile's house was illegal. Why? Because we were pagan. We were unclean. We were not sanctified. We were unholy. But Paul, God calls Paul and says, I'm about to reveal a mystery. Now we're going to get into that in this series. I'm going to reveal a mystery that what I've offered Israel, I'm going to offer the Gentiles. Now I'm going to tell you, looking around the room tonight at a bunch of Gentiles, we ought to be real tickled about that. I'm going to offer eternal life, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God in Gentiles. It's a big deal. And Paul specifically received that calling. God gave him what you and I have. We're reading it tonight. We're going to read the word of God that God revealed to the apostle, to the Gentiles, as he writes to a Gentile church. Now, were there some Jews in the church at Corinth? More than likely, yes. But it was primarily a Gentile church. So, with all that said, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, I am writing to God's church in Corinth and to all his holy people throughout Greece. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. It's quite clear that Paul is the writer of this letter. There are some that we're not sure about. Book of Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? A lot of people wonder, I, you know, my guess has always been Paul, but we don't know that because he didn't really spell it out. We know Paul wrote this letter. We know that Timothy is with him at the time of his writing. It's clear that this letter was intended to be read by more than one church. This is when it gets interesting. This letter is not just a single letter to a single group of people in a single place and time. This letter is timeless. When you hear preachers say the word of God is alive, it means that it isn't just specifically for one setting. Paul writing a little church in Greece. It's universal. What we're reading tonight 
is universal, which means it doesn't really matter which generation of people read it. It's alive. It does something from the inside out. So it is meant to be read by more than just a church at Corinth. He says specifically, did you catch it? And to all the believers in Greece, scattered around Greece. Have you noticed that Paul uses the word grace and peace? And he doesn't just use it. He used it here in this in second verse, but he doesn't just use it. Here's where it caught my attention. In fact, this is going to be the foundation tonight. When I looked at Paul's epistles, that's a churchy word for letters. When I look at Paul's letters, they all had the same beginning. Now, you might just say, well, that's just being cordial, just the way they talk. I don't think so. I think he's revealing something. Two words. In fact, I listed a few of them. In the book of, we're reading from 2 Corinthians. Now, grace and peace. And notice what he says. Look up there again, verse 2. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you something. What do you want him to give you? Paul is asking Jesus, as he writes this letter, to give the church something. These are not random words. These are specific words. These are Holy Spirit words. What does he want? Grace and peace. Do you want it? I want it. Grace and peace. Notice when he writes the Romans. I'm writing to all you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So Corinth, Roman church, 1 Corinthians, the first letter. What's he want to do? May Christ Jesus give. No, you got to notice, where do you get it? Where do you get this grace and peace? May Jesus Christ, who is the originator of grace and peace, may he give it to his church. So we've got 2 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Corinthians. What about Galatians? Look at how he opens Galatians. May he give you grace and peace. Look at how he opens Ephesians. May the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Is he cutting and pasting? He's got his iPad out. It's just cut and paste. Huh? So he doesn't have to do all that typing. What about Philippians? May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Anybody catching on to something? This is the foundation of his letters to the church. There's something available and you want it. Do you know how to get it? Did you get yours? There's something available. There's a source. And Paul is interceding that the church can get a hold of it. Why? Grace and peace. By the way, he's come in with some papers. If you're in the group tonight and you did not get a paper, raise your hand. Michael's walking around passing them out. Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, I was just running out of rooms. The reason I didn't put all those down here, I thought, well, that's all I'm going to have on this page. They all open the same way. Grace and peace. But it wasn't just Paul <clears throat> that did it. It wasn't just Paul. When I was studying, I noticed it wasn't just Paul that opened his letters with grace and peace. Peter and John used them to open their letters. 
And then it really caught fire with me. It's like, whoa, what are we missing here? Don't read over this beginning of the letter. Don't read over it. You're going to miss the offering of God. First Peter, what's he saying? God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more. There it is. Grace and peace. Second Peter, he writes his second letter. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in the knowledge. And what is the result? What would happen? What would happen if Jesus Christ gave you more and more? What did Second Peter say? May Jesus give you more and more of two things. Two things. Let's put everything else aside right now, and let's just deal with the two things that Paul begins with. It's a letter to the Gentiles. So let's ask a real stupid question just so you get involved. How many of you would like to have grace and peace? Raise your hand. You know, you can't get this many people to agree on anything. I can't imagine anybody that would not want grace and peace. What about more and more grace and peace? Yeah. So here's the next logical thought. What would happen if you got more and more of it? It's one thing to want more and more of it, but what would happen if you got more and more of it? What would happen inside the church that was filled with grace and peace? Let's look, answer, let's look at Romans chapter 5. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Now, can I ask you a real question here? When's the last time you rejoiced when you ran into trouble? It's kind of difficult, isn't it? He says we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials because those problems, those trials are developing endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit, to fill our hearts with his love. What would happen if you got more and more grace and peace? Please, we're going to focus on the words for just a few more minutes. What would happen if you got more and more? Jesus has it. He offered to give it to you. Jesus has it. You can't get it anywhere else. There's nowhere else on earth you're going to get grace and get peace. Not really. There's, there's imitations. There's substitutes. There's the cheap knockoffs. But they're not the real deal. Grace and peace. What would happen if you got more and more? Well, when you get more and more, and then you grow up in your life and you face these trials and troubles and difficulties and persecutions and hardships. What do you want when you're facing those things? Grace. Peace. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What is that? Grace and peace. Do you want it? If you don't want it yet, you will. Just hang on. You will. I've never met anybody that doesn't want it. What I have figured out that there's a whole lot of people don't know where to get it. But everybody wants it. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And what does John say? 
grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before the throne. Anybody see a trend developing among all the New Testament writers who have encountered Jesus Christ? They all stand between, listen, they all stand between Jesus and the church. They all stand between Jesus and the church. Don't, don't act like they don't, because if they weren't standing there and writing this down, how would you know what he did? They're standing between Jesus and the church. That's what the apostles did. And they received from Jesus and passed it on to the church. We're reading it tonight. What? There is the ability to receive supernatural grace, supernatural peace. So what? They all used the same words in their openings, Terry. Let's move on to the real stuff. No, no. Then, you're not, then you haven't learned anything yet. You're in the wrong class. They reveal the importance of these two words. They are not casual words. These are the words of God. As we begin this second letter to, of Paul to the church at Corinth, I should ask you, please don't answer out loud, did you get yours? Let's, let's pause for a moment and let's do some reflecting. Did you get yours? I am not going to read this book without personal application. It's meaningless. Did you get yours? Do you have the grace of God? Is it abundant, abounding in your life? Do you have the peace that transcends all human understanding, that irregardless of your circumstances, irregardless of the the eclipse and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the nuclear weapons and irregardless of all the stuff, there's still this calm in my soul. Did you get yours? Jesus has given it out. Jesus has given it out. I, I think he's got a bushel basket of it. I don't think there's any limitation in what he gives out. He's got it. He's passing it out. Did you get it? This is not philosophical. This is reality. Grace. I wonder if I were to pass around the paper. I'm always curious. I always think about this after the fact. If I were to pass around the paper and just put grace right in your definition, how many definitions I'd get for the word grace? If you were here a few weeks ago, uh, I made a very strong point to the church that we have allowed the world to define grace. It's a mistake. The world has told the church what grace is. You don't need the world to tell you what grace is. God's already announced it. What is grace? It is the undeserved favor of God. Grace means this, that you didn't do anything for him to do something good for you. In fact, he did something good for us before we were ever born. The cross of Christ happened way before we ever got here. So you can just say from a foundational level that the grace of God was given to all of us before our birth. So because it happened before our birth, what could you have done to have gotten it? You hadn't even shown up yet. So how could you have earned it? How could you have deserved it? How could some action in your life have made God say, hmm, I'll give them the cross? He gave the cross before we got here. 
It is the undeserved favor, the undeserved kindness, the undeserved friendship of God. You don't deserve it, but you get it. What is grace? Noah found it. What is it? What is it? Let's look at a couple examples, because I'm going to give you a definition. I, I refuse to let the world tell me what grace is. Because like everything else, the world perverts God's truth. It takes the truth and perverts it, stretches it, distorts it, defames it. Grace is not God's turning away from sin. That's not grace. If you let the world tell you that, you're just blinded by the darkness. So what is grace? I can tell you Noah found it. Can I tell you when Noah found it? When the whole world had thought grace was something else. One man found it. Now, I don't know about you. When I read the story of Noah, there's something that always comes in my mind. It's called mathematics. And mathematics tells me that of all the people living on the earth in the time of Noah, only eight people made it. Now, that's not good odds. And yet you let the world tell you what grace is right now, and I'm going to tell you what, everybody makes it. Why? Because God gives undeserved favor. So nobody deserves it, so everybody gets it, right? You're letting the world tell you what grace is. Noah found it. Let me read it to you, Genesis 6, 8. Because if Paul's going to begin every one of his letters, and Peter and John, they're all going to begin their letters with, may the Lord give you an abundance of grace and peace. I want to know what it is he's passing out. Noah got it. Noah found favor with the Lord. If you look at the King James Version, some of the early English translations, it says Noah found grace in the Lord. Favor and grace are the same word. Noah found it. Where was it? Under a rock? Where did he find it? How did he find it? How did he find it? If it's undeserved, how does a man find what's undeserved? You see where I'm going? How does he find what's undeserved? And God looked at the whole earth and he saw that the, he was sorry that it ever made mankind. Because all, every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. But Noah found favor in God. God looked down, there's one man. And, and listen, I'm not saying, I am not saying that Noah did something to impress God to get the package. I'm not saying that. But it, I am saying this, when God looked down, he found one righteous man. And God took his favor, undeserved favor, and put it on a man named Noah. And because it came upon the man named Noah, Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and the missuses of those got to take a ride on a boat because of the favor that God gave to one man. Now, Romans 11, let's take it a step further, New Testament. It is the same today. For a few people of Israel have remained faithful. What's the same today? You see, Noah remained faithful to a truth. Paul says it remains the same today for a few people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's, <clears throat> because of God's great grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it's through God's kindness, then it's not by their good works 
For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. Do my works have anything to do with God's grace? No, it's free, it's undeserved. So does that mean, logical thinking, does that mean now, because it is undeserved favor, I can do whatever I want to? You're letting the world define grace. Listen carefully. I've used this illustration probably three times over the years. Here's this illustration I can come up with to describe God's definition of grace. All of us, all of us, not some of us, all of us, because of sin, we have turned, God, God's here, okay? God's here. We've turned and we're walking away from God. All of us, we're walking away from God. And somehow, some way, somehow, some way, somehow, some way, this is the grace. Somehow, some way, God calls us and says, That's grace. What do you mean? Turn around. You're walking away from me. Turn around. Now, now, here's what the world says. The world says that I can continue to walk away from God after I've heard his voice to turn and face him. And God's going to do something. Like football, I'm going long. Look, I'm going long. God's going to lob me a long ball. I'm going to get to grace. Just, just here, here it comes. While my back is turned to God, he'll give me the grace over my left shoulder. Just keep going. That's not grace. That's not grace. You know what grace is? Turn around. What? Face me. Face me. Listen, I didn't turn around on my own. In fact, every inclination in my heart, I'm still walking this direction. There is nothing inside of me that will ever make me turn around except grace. That's what grace is. So if you think, if you think that the world's going to define grace, I'm going to tell you what, they're going to distort it, pervert it, and ruin it for everybody because that's not what grace is. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Roman church, and he says this, should we continue in, in, in sin so that grace may increase? You know what that means? So, well, every time I sinned, God did grace, grace. So when I sin, sin, he does grace, grace, grace. Sin, 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 grace, 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 grace. Wow, this is cool. The more I sin, the more grace I get. Apostle Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? What's the answer? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live in sin any longer? You know what it means? It doesn't mean that while, while I'm walking away from God, my very nature is to walk away from God. Your nature is to walk away from God. Have any of y'all ever had to wake up one day and said, you know what, I'm really going to try to sin today. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to really make an effort to sin today. No. Why? Because it is my nature to walk that away. I don't have to work. I don't, I don't have to do anything. Just be me. And then grace said, turn around. Noah found it. Paul found it. Did you find it? 
the very fact that you know there's a man named Jesus is grace. The very fact that you tonight have an opportunity to call upon his name is grace. You don't have to give us anything. Our nature is defiled. But he still wants us. What about peace? Peace with God that brings peace in our souls. Peace with others because we have received the grace and the favor of the Prince of Peace. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. And then I'm going to get back into Corinthians and move on. Therefore, since we have been made right with God, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith. You know what peace is? When you're made right with God. What happens when you're not right with God? You're at war with God. You're wrong with God. What if I'm not right with God? English says I'm wrong with God. The opposite of right is wrong, right? So if I'm not right with God, then I'm wrong with God. If I'm not at peace with God, I'm at war with God. Well, can't I just find some... There is no middle. If I'm not at peace with him, I'm at war with him. I remember David Reagan one time said this is simple. He said either you are under God's grace or you are under God's wrath. We're under one or the other. You're either under his grace, which brings peace, or you're under his wrath, which brings judgment. Verse 1 again. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace. I can tell you when I received peace is when I was made right with God. How did I get right with God? I received His grace. Did you hear me? I received it. I received His offer of grace. That made me at peace with God. How do you receive it? How, how do you? Let's just pretend like grace is a, a thing and God wants to pitch it to you. How do you receive it? I turn around and catch it. I turn around and I take my hands and take hold of it. Do you, well, no, I don't, I don't catch it with my back to God. That's the lie. I turn around and receive it. How, what made me turn around? I believed it was there. It's called faith. If I sent out a letter to you tonight, and I'm not going to, but if I sent out a letter to you tonight and said that, you know what? We have a plane ticket to Hawaii for you in the church office. It's got your name on it. Here's the itinerary. Happy hula. You know what you got to do to receive that plane ticket to Hawaii? You'll have to come get it. It's on the desk in the office. You have to come get, you have to receive it. Now, if you think I'm bluffing when you get the letter, <laughs> I may just send out letters this week. <laughs> if you think that I'm bluffing when I send out the letter that you've got a ticket to Hawaii, you're not going to come get the ticket. You have no faith in the letter's integrity. You have no faith that I have a ticket, and you have no faith that I'm going to give you a ticket to Hawaii. 
But if I told you I have a ticket for you to Hawaii with your name on it and it's in the office, faith is what? You're going to walk in that office and take your little hands and pick it up. Grace has been offered to God. Listen, listen, listen. The cross of Christ is the grace of God. It's not something that's coming. It's here. It's here. And God wrapped it and put it in a bow. And he said, turn around. Did you get yours? Did, did you? Well, I read the invitation, but I wasn't sure that it was really mine. You didn't get yours? It's better than Hawaii. The apostles had a common prayer for the early church. Grace and peace. It's the same today. Jesus offers grace and peace through faith. They are both gifts from God. And what does that grace and peace do to us when we receive it? I'll give you a hint. You will forever praise him for both. I want to tell you what worship is. Listen, I want to tell you what worship is. It's not when you come in here and you sing some songs. That's not it. I want to tell you what worship is. It's when you understand what grace and peace is. It will be the natural expression of your heart before God. It's the, in fact, I'll even go so far as to say you won't be able to not do it. You, you, you won't be able to not do it. What? Because as big as God must be, I often think of scale. Uh, as big as he must be, if he can breathe the star out of his mouth with his words, how, how big is God? The heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. Pretty big. As big as God is and as little as I am, the mere fact that he would look at me and say, I'm in all. I am in all. What? 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 what me? You, you know me. You care about me. You, you. You sent your son for me. Did you get yours? Second Corinthians. Let's now. Let's go back to Second Corinthians, verse three. All this, and we're on verse three. How's this, huh? We're flying, all right? All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. Please don't read over this. What's the source of comfort? God, what, what does it look like? Grace and peace. I'm comforted by the grace and peace of God in the middle of trouble. Then he says this, he comforts us in our, all of our troubles so that we can do something, so that we can sit around and be comforted. Mm -mm -mm, that's not it. He comforts me in all of my troubles so that I can extend that comfort to others. When they are troubled, we will be able to forgive them the same, to give them the same comfort God has given us. 
It's like we become this conduit of grace and peace. Paul was the conduit through which we heard about the grace and peace of Christ. And what do you think the modern church is supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be the conduit through which grace and peace is being taught today. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants grace and everybody wants peace. Everybody wants it. Somewhere down in your soul, you want it. Verse 5. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort in salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in comfort that God gives us. One thing is clear. When I read this letter, Paul is experiencing great suffering. He's experiencing suffering and hardship, and he writes this letter to Corinth in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hardship. Do grace and peace diminish during suffering? That's a question. Do grace and peace diminish during suffering? No. Grace and peace become even more real during suffering. That's what makes Christianity so different than the world. Remember the story, and um, in, in, I think it's in the book of Acts, where Paul is in jail, and they have whipped him and beat him, and he's in chains. And I don't know if it's Silas or Barnabas with him. I don't remember who was with him. But he's singing songs. He's, he's singing songs in the jail, and they have just beat him bloody. How do you do that? Grace and peace. Does it diminish in the midst of suffering? No, it increases in the midst of suffering. I'm convinced in the midst of suffering, you understand what grace and peace really is. It's when you experience the reality. God is the source of all comfort because how can anyone have comfort when their future is the grave if you he talks he uses the word comfort over and over in that in that scripture how can anybody find comfort knowing that one day in front of you i just don't know how many days it is there's a hole in the ground called a grave and it's yours how, how can you get where's the comfort in that where's the comfort um, I can tell you where the world's comfort is. We don't talk about it. We pretend like it's not real. Or I found out it's increasingly uh, the grave is an unconscious existence of nothingness. That's comforting to you? It's comforting to you to believe that your life is meaningless and in the future you'll go in the ground, which is meaningless, and eventually nobody will ever know you were ever here, which is also meaningless, and have a good life. Because it's all meaningless. Now, let's continue verse 8 through 11. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves, and we learned to rely on God. What was the result of all this suffering? As a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and we learned to rely and trust in God. 
Now, does that happen when you're on the mountaintop and everything is really sweet and rosy around you? Never. You know when that happens? When everything's messed up. We expected to die. But as a result, we stop relying on ourselves and learn to rely on God who raises the dead. Notice what he's saying. We expected to die, so we're thinking, well, the only thing we got left is we're going to die and he's going to raise us. Right? Is that futile or is that wonderful? When the church truly understands that our ultimate security is the resurrection of the dead, why would you be afraid to die? You ever notice when in Revelation, powerful scripture in Revelation, it says, Woe to you, inhabitants of the earth, for Satan has been cast down to you, and he's filled with fury, for he knows his short days are short. And then, but they overcame him. What? The people of the earth overcame Satan. Three things. Did you catch it? Three things. They overcame Satan. He, Woe to you, inhabitants of the earth, because that messed up creature, Satan, came down here. But they overcame him. How do you overcome Satan? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony. And listen, listen, they did not love their life so much they were afraid to die. Not afraid to die. Why would you not be afraid to die? Because you believe in the resurrection. So when Satan comes up and goes, tries to scare you, I'm going to take your life. Are you afraid to die? Paul says what? Look what he says. In fact, I expected to die. I thought, this is it. It's all over. And as a result of that moment where he expected to die, he says, we stop relying on ourselves and we learn to rely only on God. Why? Why? Why Why would I rely on God? Because he raises the dead. So if you kill me, God's going to come in behind you and raise me. Verse 10. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. Now, does rescuing you always mean that you're going to get out of it alive? Alive meaning in the flesh here on this earth now? No. But are you going to get out of it alive? Yeah, in the resurrection. What would happen if the church really believed that? Really believed that? I don't know why, but just in in my mind, I just I had these pictures that come in my mind when I said that. It's not in my notes. When I said that, I pictured all those guys in those orange jumpsuits standing in front of the Mediterranean with ISIS and behind them with knives on their neck. They're going to die. They're Coptic Christians. That's some of the oldest Christians in the world from Egypt. And they were lined up and they were videoing them. And, and did you notice in the videos, it's a horrid thing to watch, that their mouths are moving. You know what they're crying out? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What's your plan? You want grace and peace? They didn't want to die. They didn't want to have their heads cut off. Who wants that? But you're going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back, you're going to die. Do you want grace and peace? It's been sent. The package is already wrapped up and it's got your name on it. It's at the foot of the cross. 
Did you come get yours? It's better than a ticket to Hawaii. You receive it by faith. And if you believed it was real, that you have, in fact, received the resurrection of the dead, why would you be afraid of death? Listen, I'm not trying to act overly noble here. There is a fear in death. Quite frankly, I've never done it before. So there's kind of a fear just built into that very notion. It'll be the first time for me. But do I believe that Jesus raises the dead? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Do I have moments of doubt? Yes, I do. I do. And you know what happens when I have those moments of doubt? I put myself in prayer and in front of the word and the doubt dissipates and the truth takes back over. I know who I have believed and he is able to keep me until that day. Paul has just described the reality of grace and peace. We have placed our confidence in him. It's called faith. It is to receive the favor of God, not to hear about it, but to receive it personally. Did you notice the importance of intercessory prayer? Just a side note, and that's all it is, a side note. Did you notice the importance of praying for other people? Romans 15.30. By the way, he had it, he had it in here. Uh, let me jump to Romans 15.30. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. You know, Paul asked people, pray for me. You know, I get calls all the time. I get text messages and emails. Sometimes they're just like this many words. Pray for me right now. Pray for my son right now. Pray for my daughter right now. Pray for my family right now. And I just stop. I just stop. If I'm driving a car, I don't just stop. I'll go somewhere and I'll just, I'll just say, Lord, I'm asking you. Why? Does it matter? See, I'm convinced that the, our prayers enter the presence of God. It's, it's the, the incense that comes before the presence of God. It's, it's, it's the smell of his children crying out to him. Philippians 1.19, For I know that as you pray for me, the Spirit of Christ Jesus helps me. Philemon 1.22, one more thing, please prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Now, how does Paul endure such hardship and still keep his focus? There's practical application right here. How, how, do you, how do you go through the valley of the shadow of death? How do you pass through this incredible fire of testing and hardship and still retain this focus on Jesus? How? Verse 12, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially towards you. Our letters have been straightforward and there is nothing written between the lines, nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now. Then one day, when the Lord Jesus returns, then one day, no, never miss this in Paul's letter, then one day when Jesus returns, you'll be proud of us in the same way we're proud of you. 
Paul says there's confidence in a clear conscience. Confidence in a clear conscience. I want to make a point of that. You want to lay down your head at night and just fall asleep? Confidence and a clear conscience. My wife makes fun of me all the time because she says I can fall asleep faster than anybody she's ever seen on earth. Literally, I'm going to tell you, when I lay my head down on the pillow at night, and I'm thankful, listen, I'm grateful to God that he gave me this. I, when I go in the bedroom at night and, I, and I, I get in the bed and I pull the covers up and I fluff the pillow maybe once, I'm not even sure I can get to number two, and I'm like, I'm out. I go to sleep so fast that I don't know that I went to sleep. I just, it's, it's like almost immediate. You know, these people I hear, and my wife's one of them that says, well, I just toss and turn, and I got all this stuff in my mind, and I had, is there anything up there? I said, no, I turned it all off. I have found one of the greatest gifts of God is peace. Listen, I'm not, I'm not making, it is well with my soul. Some of you can imagine in church's size how many problems there are. This would be a wonderful church if it wasn't for all these messed up people. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, it could have, and it, there's days that it wears on you. I'm going to tell you, it does. Yes, it does. But I'm going to tell you, it is well with my soul. It is... God has offered me, he has offered you favor. That thing he gave Noah when everybody else was going to drown, he offered that to you to escape the coming judgment. And the favor has brought me peace. It is well with myself. I will tell you what, when you lay down at night, that is a blessed thing, just to know it's all right. They have lived in holiness. Paul says they have lived in holiness, which is the opposite of sin. They depend on God, not man. His letters, by the way, most of the New Testament is his letters, are straightforward. There's no gray. It's clear to understand. Let me, let me say, the world wants to tell us the Bible is not clear. It is clear. Quit letting the world tell you what the Bible says. It is the, Paul says there's nothing written between the lines. It's clear and easy to understand. The Holy Spirit makes it clear. Let me repeat verse 14. Even if you don't understand us now, then on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll be proud of us in the same way we're proud of you. Not if, but when. Did you, anybody notice the typo? Are your condiments of this fact? Are you confident, not condiments, not tomato ketchup of this fact? I put condiment in there. How in the world? I guess Spellcheck never noticed it was condiment. So I can read it like this. Not if, when Jesus comes back, are you tomato ketchup of it? is coming back. Now Paul focuses on his practical travel plans. There's a practical application to his letter. They didn't have internet, so the letter was pretty important. Verse 15, since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, 
I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice. First, on my way to Macedonia, and again when I returned from Macedonia. Then you could send me on my way to Judea. You may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I am like the people of this world who say yes, and then they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, my word to you has not, does not waver between yes and no. For Christ Jesus, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes and through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to the glory of his Father. Jesus is God's yes. I don't know why, but I just love that. Jesus is God's yes. He didn't have to say yes. You know what favor is? Yes. It could have been no. Jesus is God's yes. Jesus is our amen. Jesus doesn't waver between yes and no. Jesus is yes. To believe in Jesus is to receive God's yes. 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 Now, the revelation of the Holy Spirit power is going to come in this first chapter to complete the calling of God. How? How, how, can, I, how can I process grace and peace? in the real world. How, how can I process grace, peace in the real world? How? The Holy Spirit. Here it comes. Verse 21. It is God who enables us along with you. It is God. It's not me. It is God who enables us along with you to stand firm in Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything that he has promised us. The Holy Spirit is the first installment. How many of you have ever thought of the Holy Spirit in financial terms? The Holy Spirit is the first installment of what's coming. It's the down payment of that which is coming. It's the deposit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ inside of us. But the future will be Christ with us in person, not Spirit alone. We will see His face. The Holy Spirit is the deposit. It is the installment. It is the guarantee. But listen, it is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality will not be the Holy Spirit dwelling in spirit form inside human flesh. No, no, that's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is you will see Him face to face. This is the installment. This is the deposit. This is the power to stay on this course to receive the grace and peace of God. I don't have that power. He does. Revelation 22. Do you believe you'll see his face? Verse 3. No longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. I don't want to read over that. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. The Father and the Son. Are you hearing me? The throne of God and the, and the Lamb. The Father and the Son will be there. 
and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamp or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that that's yours. Did you hear me? That's yours. That's yours. You want it? You want it? Did you get yours? I told you earlier if I gave you a plane ticket to Hawaii and put it on the desk in the office, would you believe it? I'm going to tell you what. This is written invitation from God to the kingdom of heaven. Did you get yours? Did you receive it? Paul closes chapter 1 with a challenge to the church. The challenge is to the church then and the church today. Here we go, verse 23 and 4. Now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. What? What? The reason I didn't come to Corinth is because I was going to rebuke you. But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy. For it is by your own faith that you stand firm. Now I'm going to ask you a question before I close. Does the Apostle Paul have the authority and the spiritual credentials and power of God to rebuke the church at Corinth? You better believe he does. Does he speak for God? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So if he wanted to go to Corinth and give a rebuke, it would have been a good one. So let me, under, let me make something clear. If you acknowledge that Paul had the authority to rebuke the church, what is it that Paul had that would rebuke the church? His words. What are we reading tonight? His words. Does the Bible have the authority in the church? Some of you would say, well, you know what? Paul, yeah, probably had the authority. He could have went and fussed at the people of Corinth. But why? It was his words that had authority. Tonight, I can tell you, I read the first chapter of his words. Does it have authority in your life? It's easy for us to say, yeah, he would have had authority at Corinth. Does he have authority in you? Does this word have authority in you? Paul says it's by your own faith that you will stand. It won't be because of Paul's faith, and it's not going to be because of the faith of your mom and your daddy. No one can believe for you. It was several years ago that I just had this light bulb moment, and here, here it is. I've tried to communicate it over the years, that there is very few things that I hold possession of singularly. Singularly. And this is one. I will choose to believe what I choose to believe. You can't make me believe something I don't want to believe. I can't make you believe something you don't want to believe. Inside of me, I have autonomy over what I believe. You can't reach inside of me and turn the switch to unbeliever. You can't do it. You don't know where the switch is. It's not in you. You can't reach it. I can't reach inside of you and turn the switch to believer. I can't do it. I get it. I can't do it. You own your own switch. You can choose to believe what you choose to believe. 
Now, can I influence what you believe? Yes. Can you influence what I believe? But when everything is said and done, when the last day dawns, guess what? I will stand accountable before God for what I chose to believe. And you will too. Your mom and daddy can only bring you so far. I remember when I, when I raised my three children, I remember saying and teaching them, there's going to come a point in your life that your faith is going to have to be your faith. It can't be my, Janet and I. I can distribute my faith and teaching to you, and I can show my faith by how I live my life. But there's going to come a day when you're going to have to decide who you are on your own. I, I, can't, I can't do it for you. I can't do it for you. And, and listen, that doesn't bring me anxiety. That brings me joy. Because what? I know that I am who I am because I know what I heard. I don't need somebody else to tell me who God is. I know who He is. I have encountered Him by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word. I believe that He is who He says He is. God has offered grace and peace to us. Through his son, Jesus Christ. And all you got to do is receive it. Jesus gives it. We receive it by faith. Let's close there tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that was freely given through the cross. Thank you that Jesus, everything in Jesus is yes. Jesus is your yes. And tonight we say yes to Jesus. I pray for this grace and peace to grow in us more and more so that we might share this grace and peace with those who do not know it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.